good to see you all today. And uh, man, what a week it has been. Um, I'm sure some of you are confused when Pastor Christian said it's Hangover Sunday. Some of you are like, does he know what I did last night? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. You're okay. You're in the clear. Uh, but man, it's great to be back here. Every time we come here, it feels like we come back home. If you haven't had a chance to meet me, like you mentioned, I used to be the church playing resident here at Journey for two and a half years, which seems like a dream. It went by so quick, and sometimes I still can't believe that me and my wife and our two kids, then three kids, um, spent almost three years of our life here, and it was amazing. We're now back in Vegas, and we are getting ready to like do the thing. So like we're starting to get real now and start meeting with people. We've had a few different um, launch or vision meetings we've had with people. People are gathering together, interested in being a part of our church. We have another one coming up in two weeks. I've had a chance to preach around the city a little bit. And so we're building a launch team of people who are going to be like the nucleus of our church. And then tomorrow, you can be praying for us. I have a walkthrough at a middle school who is very open to a partnership with us so that we can meet and gather as a church in the coming future. So we're getting our people together. We're getting our space together. God will it all comes together, and then he helps me figure out what I'm doing because I don't know what I'm doing, okay? So be praying for all of that, but thankful for your support, your investment. What we talked about at the host moment, I, I fit in there somewhere, and so just know that you have no idea as you're giving to this church, you're literally seeing the kingdom expanded in a place called Las Vegas, um, and I'm thankful for that as well. Uh, before we dive in today, got to give some love out to our pastor whose birthday is today. This guy. Listen, I'm glad he told me that I was one of his favorite preachers because when he asked me to preach this weekend and he told me the lineup of the Revival Nights, I was a little upset. I was like, wait a second. You want me to come preach after Clayton King, yourself, Vance Pittman, my father-in-law. You want me to follow those guys up? And it was like, not exactly, but yeah, I do. That's exactly what I'm asking you. And I was like, cool, man. Appreciate it. So... Thankful for that, but man, I want to honor you today. Uh, I have such a love and appreciation for you and Danielle, and like I just said, man, like our time here was magical. I mean, our lives were changed coming out here, and the image I had for you, I never shared this with you. I thought this back in July before we left. It's funny you mentioned in your talk on Wednesday or on Thursday, which is funny, because I think Ryan Lefevre, he really did do something when he talked smack to you, and like he got up, and it was like Patrick Mahomes preaching. He was like, you woke up the wrong gentleman. You know what I mean? Like he was like... (laughs) He preached the best sermon in the world. He's like, I'm going to cause some problems. I'm not going to solve them. You guys go home and figure it out. I was like, I want to preach that way every Sunday of my life. But he talked about this idea of you just felt like you kept foul tipping, like a, like a batter, you know, in baseball. And it's funny because I thought, I've imagined me and my family, we were like thrown at journey like a 90 miles per hour fastball. Like just out of nowhere, who are these people? What do they want to do? We don't know what we're doing with our life. And I feel like PC, you were that batter, man, just squared up, ready to go. And you completely just nailed us. And I know sometimes, metaphorically, you might have literally wanted to hit me over the head with baseball. Um, but I feel like, we came in at 90 miles per hour and you shot us out 120 miles per hour towards Las Vegas, go plant a church, do something I didn't think I would do in a place I didn't anticipate doing it. And I just want to say, man, like, thank you for your faithfulness because of course you didn't do it. It's God, but he uses faithful men to do things in the kingdom. And I know that I'm not the only one who's had his life changed because of Journey Church International and year 13 coming up. I know there's a room full of people that can attest to that. I know there's people who have come before and I know people who will come later. So the phrase I want to say to you that I want this church to say to you all year long and the next, how many, how many years you, you pastor is keep swinging. 
Like, keep swinging no matter what happens, no matter what discouragement. I just want you to know what God is doing here is special. I think God's positioning you for a particular purpose in the kingdom, not only to expand it here in Kansas City, but everywhere around the world. So I just want to honor you, and I want you guys to help me honor our pastor by just giving him a round of applause. Love him dearly. All right, so let's talk about our sermon today, what we're doing here. We are in Acts 2. We're in a series called Consecrated, um, or another way of saying that, as Clayton King said, is Holify. So we are learning what it means to be consecrated, right? We've been using a couple definitions to talk about it. One definition is to declare something sacred, or another way to say it is to dedicate yourself to a divine purpose. And in 2024, we want to do both things here at Journey Church. We believe that Jesus' mission is sacred, and we want to devote ourselves to it more and more, right? Like that is the goal for this year is how do we consecrate, set ourselves apart for this mission that God has given us. So we're going to be in Acts 2, verse 29 through 41, and we're going to just be looking at this to figure out what does it look like for us as a church today to be set apart for the mission of Jesus. We're looking back at the early church in Acts, right? The beginning of the church of Jesus. There's no better place to look at what is a church like that was set apart for the mission of Jesus than the one that started the whole thing, okay? So we're studying through the book of Acts. We're getting through it, and in Acts 2, we're going to find some things out more of what it looks like for us to be that kind of church. This isn't in your notes, but I thought about it last night, so I told them to put it on a slide. If I could give you this in a sermon in a sentence, right? If this is what we're going to be talking about, a general overview of the sermon, I'd say it this way. The hope of Jesus is not just something to be believed in, but something to respond to. Okay, the hope of Jesus is not just something to be believed in, it is but also something to respond to. So with our text today, we're gonna to tackle this in two parts. Um, literally, I have a part one and a part two that's gonna tell us some things that we need to know. All right, so let's read it. Acts 2, 29 through uh, 36 will be the first part that we read. Everything will be on the screens as you see. You got the JCI app. It's got the notes in there. You got the insert. And when you walked in the bulletin, you can follow along with some notes, but everything will be on the screens that you need to follow along in the sermon. This is what it says. Peter's speaking here, and he says this in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses." Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. A lot there. The first thing that we see, part one, if you will, of this sermon, the thing that we need to know is that we need to know the greater hope. Part one that we see here is know the greater hope. You ask, how do you get that from the text? Well, as you may have noticed, we started reading kind of middle of a thought, right? Peter is preaching at Pentecost in Jerusalem to a primarily Jewish crowd, okay? So he's gonna go into unpacking some scriptures in the Old Testament to show them who Jesus was and to prove them that the gospel really is something to believe. But let's back up a couple of verses to verses 25 to 28, and let's just see what he's kind of referencing and talking about as he talks about King David and Jesus. Acts 2, 25 to 28, he says, for David says concerning, 
concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. If you know your Bible in some measure, you might recognize that last verse particularly. Um, Peter is quoting Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Three verses I just read, they're a direct quote from the Old Testament book of Psalms, chapter 16, 8 through 11. You might know the verse, in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's exactly the verse that we just were reading. That was the Old Testament translation. Peter's drawing from that and he's saying, this is what David is writing. And he's trying to show them that not only was King David a royal authority, but he was also a prophetic voice of the Messiah that would come one day. That Jesus fulfilled this prophetic psalm. But it's kind of funny because in a second, he kind of disproves it. Like he kind of shows us why David definitely couldn't be who he was talking about by just how he wrote about himself. Think about it. He, listen to how he wrote this psalm. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness. Right? David's writing this psalm in Psalm 16, and a lot of the psalms written in first person, kind of from David. You're thinking it's about him, but then what, look what Peter says. In verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Brother's dead. He is long gone. He was buried. His tomb is right there. We know that guy did not make it. He went to Hades. He saw corruption. His flesh is decaying. This was not about David. So he kind of like sets up and he talks about this, this famous psalm, talks about a famous person, David, who is this emblem, this kind of symbol in the Old Testament of the Messiah to come. And he just wants to point out, hey, I want everyone to know something. Uh, this did not pan out for David. Came out and said, God's going to take care of me. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to go to the place of the death. I'm not going to decay, see corruption. And Peter's like, yeah, you did. You definitely did. Like, we got your tomb right over there, brother. You're dead. So they're trying to figure out, okay, well, what does this mean? If, if David could not be the one to fulfill this psalm, then who could it be about? And this is what Peter's point is, that it's not about David. It's about Jesus. Kind of a bummer at first, but then he goes on to explain that ultimately David was this lesser hope that people looked and symbolized, but Jesus is the greater hope that we have that will last for all eternity. That's why Peter makes it clear in verse 36, all those of the house of Israel will therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let me give you the practical application of what this means for us today in our 21st century context, okay? Spiritual reminder here, outside of Jesus, no person or ruling authority can bring real, lasting, eternal hope. I'll read it again for you. It's early morning. I get it. Outside of Jesus, no person or ruling authority can bring real, lasting, eternal hope. Amen. Right? See, here's the thing. It's interesting. If you double-click a little bit on this idea of even a monarchy in Israel, the history is a little bit sad. Israel's unintended to have a king. Israel's intended to be ruled by God, to be a theocracy. But then eventually the story goes, what we see in the Old Testament is really a story of covenants, starting with the man of Abraham, and then it went to Noah, then to Moses. Eventually, it get, went through a time out of Exodus into the, the first five books of the Bible. We go into Joshua, then we get to Judges, maybe the darkest time of Israel's experience or existence when there's no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They come out of that chapter into 1 Samuel, and God has been sending judges to rule his people, kind of bring them back into his ways, try to give a prophetic presence and let them know like, hey, stop disobeying, stop living in sin, follow me, remember my law. 
And then we get to 1 Samuel, and look what happens in 1 Samuel 8. The elders of Israel, they gather together. They come to Samuel, the, the current prophet or judge at that time. They come to Samuel at Ramah, and they say to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Might want to underline that. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For that rejected you, but they rejected me from being king over them. You know what's so interesting about this passage? They come, they say, Hey, we want to be like all the other nations, we want a king. And so God tells Samuel, you know what? Don't take it too hard. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. I'm supposed to be the ruler over them. They don't want that. Okay. Go tell them what it's going to be like to have a king. So Samuel actually, in the passage, you can read it later, he goes on and says, hey, just so everyone's aware, before we do this, this king guy is going to be absolutely miserable to you. He's going to take all your daughters, your sons, your horses, your lands, the things you love. He's going to be a tyrant. And when you get upset, don't come running back to God. They do. He answers them. But he tells them, this is not going to pan out well for you. And when you look at the history of Israel, for the majority of the people who ruled over them, they were narcissistic, brutal, tyrant kings that constantly would lead the people away from God. But the driving cry of their heart was, we want to be like the other nations. This is the complete opposite of what it means to be consecrated. You know that? To be consecrated means to be set apart. It means to be different doesn't mean to be like all the other nations in the world. It means that you're holy, distinct. And they came to Samuel and said, we don't want to be the people of God, ruled by God. We want to be like everyone else. This isn't really in my notes, but I just want to know, I just want to let you know, that is a tension that we got to ride for the rest of our lives of always fighting against wanting to be like the rest of the world. We cannot have our cake and eat it too when it comes to Jesus. We can't be friends with the world and friends with God. It's either one or the other. And the people of Israel time and time again show us how they missed it and honestly how we miss it a lot of the time. But what else does this show us about wanting a king? How does this apply to us? Well, I don't know. Do you think that we overwhelmingly look to the powers above us for peace, security, and hope? Do you think that we might have a slight obsession with what the political parties do say or promise? <laughs> Maybe. Could we maybe be like Israel and wanting not God, but man to be our authority? I don't know if you're aware of this or not in year 2024, but we are in what some would consider to be an election year. I'm very acutely aware of that because I'm planting a church in this year. <laughs> and let me tell you how jazz I am that we'll be launching about two months before this election takes place and I get the honor of walking my baby church through that nightmare. <laughs> Cannot wait. And if you remember, last time we did this little charade, we were not only having a presidential election that was very polarizing, but we also went through something called COVID. That was going on four years ago. I cannot believe it's been four years since that's happened. And man, that year was tough. Tough for a lot of people. People would say, hands down, it's probably the hardest year of their life. In our existence, in this moment of time, it's been the most difficult year. Rightfully so. With the pandemic, new territory, the racial issues and tensions we had, the presidential election, the polarizing politics. Man, it was just tough. It revealed a lot of things, not about people, but also about the church. There's things about the church that we, we got into and we realized, oh, we actually weren't prepared for all this. It was tough. 
but it was also fascinating to see what it revealed about people who went to church. The studies that came out of 2020 were really fascinating. A lot of people would say, most people, studies would show, man, it was a mental decline for the country. Like, no one came out of this unscathed. It was bad news for everybody. Limping around, mentally depressed, anxious, stressed, sad. Everyone went down except for one particular group of people. Those who were regularly involved in a part of a church. You know that? Gallup did a study, in fact, and what was interesting is that they found that regular church attenders were the sole major group surveyed that actually either improved or stayed the same through COVID. It says that every other major demographic measured by this Gallup survey that they took showed declines, including several with double-digit drops percentage-wise. Like, if they're like, oh, we're 50% good in 2019, they're like, we're 40 or below now. We are not doing good. Those who describe themselves as nearly weekly or monthly church attenders, they were not doing good. Those people who said they seldom or never went to church, they were not doing good. But those people who said, we're plugged in, man, they're the only people that actually did better through the hardest time in our history so far in our lifetime. Why do I bring this up? Because we got to understand that what we got coming up here is a great snapshot of our country and where we put our hope in. We put it way too much in the government over us. It's necessary. We have it. It is what it is. But there's no answers coming from anyone who's going to be in that office. No one's going to solve the problems of the human condition by going into any oval office in America. That's not going to happen. And what we need in 2024 is not to figure out how to vote for the right person. What we need is to come together reminding ourselves of who is ultimately our living hope and who's sitting on the throne. That's what we need. Which is why I love what this church is doing. This challenge they have of 36 and 24. Have you heard of it yet? They're challenging you and your families. Hey, at least come to 36 weeks in the year to church. Just 36. What is that, four months not coming to church? I recommend more than that. But hey, (laughs) if you have to, come to church. Not because we want better attendance numbers. I'm telling you scientifically, they're catching up with the Bible and they realize coming to church, shockingly, is good for you. Not even in, yeah, go ahead. Not even for COVID. Just overall, people go to church regularly. Like regular, a part of their life. Man, they have better mental health, less anxiety, less stress, more fulfillment, more satisfaction. It's crazy. It's insane. And for you and your family, the best thing you might be able to do is to make sure you make it a point to come on Sunday with your family. Sit under the word of God. Be under worship. Be with the family of God. Some people want to say, like, well, we don't want to be legalistic. We want, you know, our kids to feel like they have to go to church. You know, a lot of kids grow up now, they deconstruct, they walk away because they have to, they're forced to go to church. That's not why they stopped going to church when they grew up. It's not because they were forced to go to church weekly. It's because they went and saw hypocrisy weekly. Here's what that, I'm just saying, this is a little harsh. I'm just saying, I think the issue is not that people are forced to come to church, but then they see people come to church and then they don't actually live out what they hear week in and week out. That's damaging. And so we got to be here, but then we also need to take what we learn and what we hear and apply it to our life. That would be the most life-giving thing you can do for yourself and for your family. So I don't know where you're putting your hope, but this is a snapshot for Peter saying, hey, the guy that we looked to for years, this Messiah figure that we saw in King David, he knew that it was going to come through his line. We didn't know what he was talking about. But here's what we know. Ultimately, Jesus is going to be that greater hope. Not a man, not an institution, but Jesus so we got to know the greater hope. 
Second thing we got to know, we're not there yet. Let's read Acts 2, 37 through 41, and then we'll get to the part two. Continuing on, it says this. Peter finishes this sermon and it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone from whom or whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves with this, from this crooked generation. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Part two, we gotta know the greater hope. We also gotta know the right response. I appreciate, by the way, here, the writer of Acts. I think it's really cute that they go on to explain what Peter answered them and they say, and also he said in a lot of other words, this and that. Like they understood Peter was a preacher. We're not good at being succinct, but we got a good message, (laughs) right? He was like, he says, it literally says, and with many other words. He's like, we don't got time to tell you all he said. He said a lot of stuff, but this is the gist of it. I'm like, nah, I feel that. I feel that. Some of you in here are thinking, yeah, we get that right now. Yeah, we feel it. I get it. We got to know the right response. What do we see happen? Peter lays it all out for them. He finishes up his sermon, right, on Pentecost. He's proving to them that Jesus was this Messiah figure they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. And then he lands it with saying, and you killed him. The guy you've been waiting for to come save you from your sins that we've been promised from the beginning of time, you crucified him. And they receive that, and rightfully, verse 37 says, they are cut to the heart. I think this is key to the sermon today, that phrase, cut to the heart, I think it's describing what we would call biblical conviction. I want to give you a definition of what biblical conviction is, just in a general sense as I was thinking about it. Here's how I would describe biblical conviction. When the Holy Spirit of God reveals an area of my life that is not in line with the Word of God. I think that's a pretty good general description. When the Holy Spirit of God reveals an area of my life, whatever that is, that is not in line with God's word, right? That's what Peter just did. He just preached a sermon. He's preaching the gospel. He's expounding the scriptures. And all that does is cuts the people to the heart because they realize, oh, we missed it. Oh, we stepped out of line. They're cut to the heart because of what he was preaching to them. Now you might say, that's a little intense. That's a little discouraging, but this is a primary function of the word of God in our lives. Look what it says in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, that's a primary function of the Bible. Whether you're coming in here and you're hearing the word preached to you or you're reading it every day, what we have to understand is it's not just knowledge that we're gaining from this book. It's a living and active book that we are experiencing as we apply it to our lives. That it's shedding a light in us and showing us where we're out of line with God's will. It's cutting us to the heart. And we need this in our life. Daily, not just once a Sunday. But we gotta know the scriptures because it's our primary guide in this life to follow Jesus. And oftentimes, we err off the road. Don't know if you're aware of that. I do. And if I know anything about human beings, you do too. We need something to bring us back in line with who he is and what he's called us to do. See, the problem with this is that we do not like admitting that we're wrong. I know I don't. I know my wife would agree with that statement. And I think the same of her as well. 
me and Hannah usually will test kind of similarly on like Myers-Briggs, DISC, Enneagram. Like we're in like the same camp. So those stubborn, really strongly opinionated people. It could be a lot of fun and also a lot of not fun. And for some reason, we're shocked that we have three very stubborn and opinionated children right now. We're like, where did this come from? We're like, look at who we are. That's us. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. It's hard to do that. In America today, we don't encourage admitting our faults. So this idea of biblical conviction demands that we have some form of openness to say, oh yeah, I missed that. It demands that we have some kind of response to see something out of line with our life, admit it, and do something about it. I think this is a huge issue in the church today. You say, why? Because of what Peter used to describe Jesus in verse 36. The two terms he used. He said that he was Lord and Christ. Now remember, Pastor Christian taught on this a couple weeks ago. Messiah, Christ, Savior, all kind of the same similar words used in the Old Testament and New Testament. That's what we're talking about. You could say that Peter is trying to argue that Jesus is both Lord and Savior of our lives. We've heard that before, right? We're about to baptize 80 plus people a day. They're going to confess as a, an, a, as a mode of confession of faith that Jesus is Lord and Savior of their life and be baptized. But these two terms are incredibly loaded with meaning. And I think there's a response that we need to have towards both. So two responses towards Jesus being Lord and Savior. The first one is this. As Savior, we confess and repent to him. As Savior, we, refess, we confess and repent to him. You say, well, why do you think we need to have a way to do that? Because if we don't do that, it cuts off the need of our fellowship with him. If we don't have a practice of doing this in our life, it cuts off our fellowship with him, our relationship with him to grow deeper. You say, why are you so stuck on this having to happen? Because of what the Bible says. Look what 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says about us. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse nine, we like this verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, I actually used to think this passage, I was, one day I was like, is this even about us? Is this about us or lost people? Like, is it about people who believe in Jesus who are Christians or people who don't believe in Jesus? But there's some phrases in here that clearly show us that it's talking about people in church who are Christians today. It says in verse eight, the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. Verse 10, we say we have no sin. We make God a liar. Don't want to do that. And his word is not in us. Those phrases, truth and word not being in us is showing us that we, they're talking about believers. People who don't know Jesus don't have the truth in them. People who don't know Jesus don't have the word of God in them. So he's saying to Jesus-loving people, if you're going to say you have no sin in your life, you're deceiving yourself and you're making God a liar. So we have to have a practice of verse 9. The comfort is, it's discouraging to think, man, there's sin in my life i got to do something with? Yeah, you do. And guess what? Verse 9 tells us, if we're willing to confess that sin, guess what he does? He covers that sin. But we have to be willing to bring it to him. So there's a natural thought, I think, that seems correct, but it's actually wrong. That is, the more that we walk with Jesus, the more that we go to church, the more that we grow spiritually, that we should sin less, and therefore we have less sin to confess and repent of, right? That makes a lot of sense. Now, to an extent, that is true. That will happen. As you grow in holiness, as you grow in sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, you should stop doing things that are utterly sinful in your life and grow more in his ways and follow him. But that doesn't mean that there's not still sin to be taken care of. 
I want to demonstrate this by talking about Paul's, the Apostle Paul's spiritual growth in his life. I think there's three verses that were shown to me one day from a pastor. I thought that was so insightful about how we are supposed to be growing spiritually. Paul, in the beginning of his ministry near that, he wrote a church or wrote to a church in Corinth. And in this letter, he says this phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. For I am the least of the apostles, right? Kind of a humble statement, also kind of a humble brag, isn't it? Like he's like, of all the apostles, the super Christians, MVPs in the kingdom of God, the ones who are establishing this bad boy, no big deal, I'm last. She's like, okay. Thanks for the random flex, man. Like, that's cool. Good for you. Then we go on further in his ministry, Ephesians 3, 8, right into the church in Ephesus. He writes, I am the very least of all the saints. Okay, we got some progress here. So he goes from, I'm the least of all the super Christians. Now he's saying, of all the people who know Jesus, all the Christians in the world, I'm the worst one of them. I'm at the bottom of every single Christian in existence at this point in my life. That's a pretty humble statement. But then near the end of his ministry, one of the last letters that he writes in the Bible, 1 Timothy, he says this, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You see the trajectory of his life? I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm the least of all the saints. Hey, of all the sinners in the world, the broken people, I'm the worst. Just over the span of his life, as he walked with Jesus, you know what happened with Paul? He became less impressed with himself. As he walked with Jesus more, it's not that he's hanging his head. Paul's not a sad, like, he's, he's like a joyful guy, but he's just being honest about what he's seeing inside of him. I started a men's group with a few guys a couple weeks ago, just three guys in my life that are close with me. We're just trying to, to read the Bible, grow spiritually together. So we're sitting down every week, we read a part of the Bible. And then we have a few questions that we ask ourselves that I got from some of the pastor just for accountability, how we're feeding ourselves spiritually, how we're feeding other people spiritually, and then how we have in the last week fed our flesh. We have a question in there that's designed specifically to figure out, all right, let's ask some tough questions. How did you miss it this week? How'd you give in a little bit to the flesh this week? How did you feed not the spirit, but the flesh? And I explained to them what I was explaining to you today. It's natural to think that the more we do this, we should be better week in and week out. I should have less things to tell you about. I should have less heartache and failure in my life. But that's not the point. The point is the more that we walk with Jesus and we walk in the light of the gospel, the more it shines in our heart and shows us the dark spots that we can't see. See, Paul, as he walked with Jesus, it's not that he started to sin more and more. It's not that at the end of his life, he was just like the worst sinner doing all the worst things, all right? It wasn't just like running wild. It's like, who is this guy? No, man, I'm sure that at the end of his life, he had like some things down. I'm sure he was experiencing victory, but he was honest about just understanding the more I walk with Jesus, the more I realize, man, everything in my life is just grace. I bring nothing to the table. There's just still this flesh nature in me, this sin nature in me that needs to be taken care of. And so for you and me, I don't, however long you've been going to church, if you're in 15 small groups, you serve every day of your life, that's not gonna stop the fact that you still need to have some kind of practice in your life of confessing or repenting of the sin in you. It's like taking the trash out. You just do it once. You gotta do it sometimes several times a day. And if you miss trash day, oh my goodness, isn't that frustrating? <laughs> then you have like one big trash day, you know, like it's like finally a time to take out the trash. We do that spiritually. It's like, all right, now it's time to like come clean. Like here's my list of 50 million things that I've messed up in my life. This is the best part about being a Christian, in my opinion. We do not have to have it all together. We do not have to put on a mask and tell people that we're perfect. We get to tell people, man, I messed up. Man, I'm not nailing it. And guess what? I'm okay. Because the gospel tells me that Jesus has that covered. 
that I don't have to hang my head because of that. I can walk in the joy of the gospel knowing that if I bring my sins to him, there's no shame involved. He's already taken care of that. And I get to walk in peace and comfort and joy. He's a pastor who used to be in the Bay Area, used to pastor in Las Vegas. He's back in the Bay Area. And I saw he preached at this conference last week and I saw a quote and I was like, man, I'm using that quote. And I told him, I said, I'm stealing this quote. He was like, God bless you. I was like, thanks. He was talking about this, this kind of a similar idea. I just thought this is so fitting for this message. He says this, two ways to live your Christian life. You can cover your sin or you can have your sin covered. I thought, there it is. That's it. That's our choice. We can try so hard over and over again to make people think that we're good and we're not slipping up and we don't have any issues or struggles or we can just be honest and we can experience the best power in the world of Jesus covering our sin and walking in the light of what that brings. I'll ask you a question. When's the last time you actually confessed a sin to another person? I'm not saying you have to, but have you ever had that experience of just coming to a brother or sister who loves you, a safe environment, and being like, man, here's what happened in my life. Here's where I missed it. And then have them to pray over you to see the gospel embodied in that way? Do you have a community of people where that's safe to do? James 5.16 says that we should confess our sins and be healed. Like, what if there's things that God's withholding from you spiritually, waiting for you to come clean about some stuff in your life that he wants to unleash in your life, but not until you come to him with these things bearing you down? When's the last time you had that experience? As Messiah, the Savior, we should have all the confidence in the world to come to him with these things to confess and repent of sin. But secondly, as Lord, we must follow and obey him. Gotta follow and obey him. It's interesting, when we talk about revival, you know the two things that happen when revival happens? Repentance and obedience. Some would say it's an outpouring of God's spirit that leads the people repenting of their sin, turning away from it, and following Jesus. Not necessarily longer worship sets. We love those. But life change that happens with the spirit of God comes into your life and completely transforms you. To where you see the sin in your life, you don't want anything to do with it, you turn away from it and you run to him. It's repentance and obedience. We often like to think of Jesus as our savior. That one's fun and easy to think of. The Lord part's a little more difficult, isn't it? In our American culture today, that's hyper-individualistic. We want to stand on our own two feet. We want to be self-sufficient. It's hard to think of having someone rule over us. But that's who Jesus is in our life. The more I grow, the more I walk with Jesus, the more that I observe the world, our current cultural moment in America the American church, I just have a feeling, I feel like there's a question Jesus would want to ask a lot of professing Christians today. And it'd be Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord and Savior? But the Lord part really isn't there. If I could just be really practical and straightforward, when it, when it means for someone to be Lord in your life, it means you do what they say. Just a straightforward way to put it. Now, obviously, with a relationship with Jesus, there's more to that, right? Pastor Vance talked about that. It's a love relationship. Out of our loving relationship, obedience should flow. Absolutely. That is the origin point of everything. But if that obedience isn't coming out of our life, we gotta ask some deeper questions. What's the cause? What's the hindrance? 
What's what Pastor Christian said on Thursday? What's the excuse? Because it's not just a makeover, it's a takeover, right? Him coming into your life and saying, I'm Lord now, I'm King. So why do we call him that and not do what he says? The reality is this is the best thing for us. He is the best King. He knows how we're supposed to live. Jesus' ruling authority is not burdensome to us. It's life-giving. It's safe. It's joyful. So for some of you in this room, everyone, we believe this church has some sort of next step. What is that for you? And the scriptures, not only did they just repent, but it says they repented and immediately they were baptized. For every Christian in the world, their first act of obedience once they have come to relationship with Jesus is to profess that to the world through the mode of baptism. Listen, on Wednesday night, we had a great time. We saw 58 people come to know Jesus. 58 people got saved. Let me tell you what those 58 people need to do. You gotta get baptized. If you're here today and you're one of those people on Wednesday night, you raise your hand, you stood up and you said, man, today's the day I have a relationship with Jesus. We are so happy for you. Today is the day you can profess that faith. After service today, we're gonna have 80 plus people already signed up to be baptized right here in these tanks. Normally, you gotta sign up, gotta go through your process, write a testimony, not today. You run outside, you scream, I need to be baptized. We got you covered. We'll get you a towel, get you a change of clothes. That's your next step. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. No considerations. Did you get saved? Uh Uh-huh. Baptism. It is the perfect day to do it with the family of God cheering you on, watching it, really having a mini scene of Acts 2 here, seeing 3,000 souls be added to the church, baptized, that was a party. Doing that today, close to 100 people are gonna be added to the kingdom, professing their faith. Day for you is getting into a small group. Heard that on Friday, the importance of being a part of the family of God, belonging. It's a blessing, it's also a responsibility. Like we gotta be in that. We're missing out if we're not in a thriving spiritual community with other people. Are you connected? Groups fairs end in a day, not too late, never too late. Talk to Mike or Ryan, they'll get you plugged in. It could be midnight somewhere, they'll get you plugged into a group. Maybe it's something to do with your stewardship, your finances, how you're using your time, you're leading your family. Maybe it's serving. Man, what is it in your life right now that you know in this moment, God's putting his finger on it, that you are not yet living under his lordship? He is both Savior and Lord. In order to consecrate ourselves to the mission of Jesus, to dedicate, to pursue it, we gotta know the better hope we have in Jesus and we gotta know the right response. So what is it that he's speaking to you today? Would you pray with me as we close? Just as you're sitting there, we're about to enter into a time of reflection. Every week we do this just to have a space to converse with the Lord. We try to come with these questions just to give you a chance to clearly ask him and the Holy Spirit some probing questions out of this sermon just to see what is he doing in you. Just a moment, I'm going to pray. The question's going to roll on the screen and then we're going to close out for today. But just in your seat, would you just pray right now in your heart, just ask God to speak to you. After all that you've heard, Just pray, Lord, speak to me. Ask for a heart to receive, to hear, if necessary, to admit you're wrong, and then to run after him and experience the grace of the gospel.
God, thank you today for your word. Thank you for the better hope that we have in Jesus. We pray right now that you would speak to us as we sit in your presence, Lord. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name.